0: You are listening to the sermon audio of New Hope Community Church in Canaan, New Hampshire. For more information, visit our website at newhopecommunity.net. Therefore, brothers, since we have confidence to enter the holy places by the blood of Jesus, by the new and living way that he opened for us through the curtain, that is through his flesh, And since we have a great high priest over the house of God, let us draw near with a true heart in full assurance of faith, with our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. Let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering, for he who promised is faithful. And let us consider how to stir up one another to love and good works, not neglecting to meet together, as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another There are a few topics that I think uh, pastors and those who fill pulpits sometimes feel a little bit awkward about preaching. Uh, The first, of course, I think we would all recognize is the subject of giving money to the church. It feels self-serving. It feels um, a little bit dirty when you are uh, preaching to the congregation about them contributing to something that ultimately pays your salary. It's just a weird thing to do. It feels strange. The other one that I hear from some of my pastor uh, and elder friends who fill pulpit is the subject of church attendance and church membership. Because again, it feels a little bit strange to basically be cultivating your audience in the midst of them by preaching on that subject. But the word of God does not allow us to shy away from topics simply because they feel a little bit uncomfortable or the situation may be a little bit awkward. So we come to our subject today in Hebrews 10, and I want to be straightforward with you. This is a hard teaching. This is a passage that I think sometimes we pull that middle section out, and it feels sort of warm and fuzzy, but the full context of the passage is actually quite frightening for us, and it should be frightening for us. The context of the passage is that we have commands to draw near, and ultimately, if we refuse to do that, we will face judgment. So we'll begin our passage talking about the promise of God in the first few verses, and then we'll progress on to talk about what uh, obligations and commitments and requirements come attached to those promises. And then we'll close by talking about the consequences of failing to keep those obligations. So Hebrews 10, uh, 19 through 21, just to read it again, it says, Therefore, brothers, since we have confidence to enter holy places by the blood of Jesus, by the new and living way that he opened for us through the curtain that is through his flesh, since we have a great high priest over the house of God. This is one of those passages that have a lot of like therefores and since and logical relationships. And so to perhaps uh, clarify those relationships, we may simply just read this as, since we have confidence to enter the holy places by the blood of Jesus, and then we could Mentally abstract that next verse and go straight on to the next passage to say, uh, let, that let us, therefore let us, therefore let us. There's this series of three um, exhortations or, or commands or, or calls to action. So verse 19 and 20 here, establish our status before God through Jesus Christ. We have confidence, we are able to enter the holy place, and we're able to enter that holy place or those holy places by the blood of Jesus. So we are granted access to the throne room of God and all of the privileges and benefits that come with that. We're granted that through the blood of Jesus Christ that he is open for us and provided for us by his death on the cross and also through his resurrection and ascension. Now, the verse tells us that we have a high priest over the house of God. So we have to speak a little bit about what this house of God actually is. The house of God is both the invisible church and the visible church. It's, it's both of those things. And when we speak of the visible church or the invisible church, we're not really talking about two different churches. We're talking about sort of two attributes or features of the one universal church. And this church, this invisible, glorious, universal church includes not only saints that are living, but it includes the saints who have gone before us, who are now, uh, in heaven with, with Christ. It includes the Old Testament saints, the Old Testament church, and it also, in the mind of God at least, includes all of the saints who will go before, who will go in front of us in the future. So I'm reading here from the Westminster Confession of Faith, which is a, a British confession that came about in the 1600s. Uh, it's it's the, really the only uh, major English-written confession of faith um, from the era, and this is chapter twenty-five, uh, section one. It says, "The Catholic or Universal Church, which is invisible, consists of the whole number of the elect that have been, are, or shall be gathered into one; shall be gathered into one under the under Christ, the head thereof, and is the spouse, the body, and the fullness of Him that filleth all in all." So, what this is telling us, and this is uh, this is the confession that then was modified to be called what's called the Savoy Declaration of Faith, which was a congregational version of this. It's more or less the same. And then it was further modified by the Baptists in London to make the London Baptist Confession of Faith. So there's a theological trajectory of understanding what the church is that we fall into that same trajectory. Our church um, exists in this long history of reflection on what the church is. What it says here is that the church is invisible. The invisible church consists of all of the elect. It's under Christ. And what it is, what the church is, this invisible church is the spouse, the body, and the fullness of him that filleth all in all. So we don't want to get weird and metaphysically corrupt on this. The Roman Catholic Church goes this way and they say that the the church is actually the ongoing incarnation of Christ. That's not what we're saying, but the church is the body of Christ. It's the mystical body of Christ. It's his body in the world. We are united to him. We are one with him. He is our head and we are his body. And so when the confession here speaks of the church being the fullness of him that filleth all in all, it's not just using a metaphor. It means more than that. That's the reality of what it is. Us gathered here today, those of us who are elect, in this church, in churches across town, in churches 100 years ago, and in churches 100 years from now, we are the fullness of Him that filleth all in all. This brings to mind our passage that we read, part of our passages that we read as our meditation in Acts that when Saul was rounding up Christians, he was dragging men, women, and children out of their homes, he was dragging them before the synagogues, and he was murdering them and placing them in prison. He wasn't just doing that to individual Christians. He was assaulting and attacking the very mystical body of Christ, which is why Christ says, Saul, he doesn't say, Saul, why are you persecuting my people? He says, Saul, why are you persecuting me? So when we join ourselves to the local church, and we therefore join ourselves to the invisible church, we are joining ourselves to Christ. And the logical converse of that is if we separate ourselves from the local church, if we separate ourselves from the body of believers and refuse to participate, we have separated ourselves from the mystical body of Christ. Now we'll talk about what that means and how that plays out, but that's a that's a really key point that I don't know we always get. The local church is not just a gathering of individuals, it's a body that is united to Christ. So Leaving that or failing to unite yourself to that is a serious, significant thing. The first part of section two of that chapter of the Westminster Church says the visible church, which is also Catholic or universal under the gospel, that is to say, not confined to one nation as before under the law. So the Old Testament church, the the Jewish church was isolated to one nation under the law. The New Testament church is not. So it's universal in the whole world. It consists of all those throughout the world that profess the true religion and is the kingdom of the Lord Jesus Christ, the house and the family of God, out of which there is no ordinary possibility of salvation. So sometimes we hear that last phrase and we think, oh, that must, that's a Roman Catholic thing. That the, the Roman Catholics think that if you're not part of the church, you can't be saved. The Protestant tradition, right down through John Calvin, Martin Luther, all of our All of our Reformation heroes that we quote and reference and read, they all believed that. They all believed that if you were not united to the local church in actual practice, that you were not a part of the group that we ordinarily would say has salvation. That's not to say God can't work in extraordinary ways or ways outside of the ordinary, but we should not anticipate that he does, and we have no promises that he will. What Christ promises his people is, if we, is that if they unite themselves to him and they embrace him by faith, that in that union with him, he will be their great high priest over the house of God, which is the church. So our high priest is not a high priest over the people who live down the street who are atheists that don't attend church. We're not talking about the high priesthood of all mankind. We're talking about the high priesthood that Christ exercises over the church, over his body. This is the setting for these, uh, they're called hortatory addresses. It's just a, uh, an encouragement, which includes the speaker. So the speaker here is not saying all you people, he's saying, let us, it's, it's incumbent on me as well to do all of the things that this speaker, and that I am going to explain to you, we must do. So in verse 22 and following, he says, let us draw near with a true heart in full assurance of faith with our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. Let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering, for he who promised is faithful. And let us consider how to stir one another up to love and good works, not neglecting to meet together as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another all the more as you see the day drawing near. There are three uh, exhortations or hortatory commands, however we want to phrase it. Three that are here, let us draw near, let us hold fast, and let us consider one another. And we'll spend a a little bit of time in the first two, and then we're going to camp out a little bit in the third. Some features of drawing near that um, we should take notice of is that we do this in full assurance of faith. We do this with our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience. Now, this may be somewhat controversial, and there's been disagreement in the history of the, the church, but the reference here to being sprinkled clean and being washed with pure water seems to be very clearly to me a reference to baptism. Baptism, uh, in our understanding of the scripture, uh, in the, the London Baptist Confession, in the New Hampshire Baptist Confession, in the church's faithment of state, uh, statement of faith, is something that marks us out as visible members of the church. It signifies our membership in the invisible church. So our, our church believes that uh, baptism is, it's not only this, but it is an outward symbol that signifies an inward reality. Baptism sanctifies us in the sense that it sets us apart as God's people and a sanctified thing or person is obligated to fulfill the purpose for which it was sanctified. So, if you think in the Old Testament, there's all sorts of instructions about how we dedicate and consecrate and sanctify things like bowls and forks and candlestands. Those things were not materially different than another candlestand. You could have two candlestands that were identical in nature, and the fact that one has been sanctified gives it a purpose that is different. Two bowls are the same thing. One is for common purpose. One is for sacred purpose. It is the sanctification that sets it apart. And if you take a sanctified bowl in the Old Testament and you use it for unsanctified purposes, it becomes unsanctified. It's no longer dedicated to God's purposes or to God's use anymore. Baptism in part sanctifies us this way. And it does so by signifying our union with Christ. We don't have time to go there, but one of the cornerstones of Baptist understanding of, of um, baptism is that baptism, and the reason we immerse people in this church is because it, it symbolically is we're dying and going under the water the same way Christ died and went under the ground. And then we raise up out of the water the same way that Christ raised up out of the ground. It is an outward symbol which shows that we are Christ's we belong to him. And as those who belong to him, we are united with his church. One of the most um, relevant texts here, it comes from 1 Peter 3. You don't need to turn there. I'm just going to read it briefly. This is another one of those passages or verses that has a lot of commas and subclauses. So I'm going to clarify it a, a little as I did the other one. It reads, baptism, which corresponds to this, this being the flood, now saves you not as a removal from dirt, but from the body as an appeal to God for a good conscience through the resurrection of Jesus Christ. If you take the the sentence apart and rearrange it, so the logical relationships are a little bit clearer. What we come with is baptism now saves you as an appeal to God for a good conscience through the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Baptism is a symbol of an outward reality, but it is also our appeal to God for a clean conscience through the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Something happens when we were baptized. It's not just an outward symbol. Something happens to us, and we become something that we were not before. We become Christians, and we are united to the church. That's part of the reason why at this church, we don't typically baptize people who are not regular attenders. If someone called the church and said, I just moved to the area, Uh, I became a Christian two days ago, and I'd like to get baptized, we would be overjoyed and we would welcome them. We probably would not baptize them until they had been attending for a little while. There might be some exceptions to that, but that would be our typical practice. Turn with me briefly over to Romans 6. I do want to spend a little bit of time just uh, supporting what I said because it's not the typical way we think about these passages. So Romans 6. In Romans 6, Paul is in part responding to a criticism from uh, his critics that he was advocating a form of antinomianism, that he was saying we should just sin more, because if we sin more, then we get more grace. And his response, I think, is uh, instructive for us. I'm going to read verses 1 through 14. He says, what shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin that grace may abound? By no means. How can we who died to sin still live in it? Paul's answer to the charge, that is theology, that if we get all of the grace without having to do anything for it, that the the theology that says God does all the verbs, he does all the work of salvation, we receive it and, and receive is a passive verb, even that we don't do actively. His response to the accusation that that leads to lazy people is to say that is a stupid and ridiculous, illogical conclusion. It would be like saying when we bring someone to life, when someone goes to the ED and they're having a heart attack and they, they code on the table and the team brings them back, it would be like saying, well, that, that's going to lead to lazy people because he didn't have to do any work in reviving himself. I think we can see how stupid that is, right? That person has got a road to recovery, but they're going to be alive. They're going to do what living things do they're going to grow, they're going to move, they're going to do all the things that a living organism does. This is the same thing. When God gives us new life, we can't help but be alive. When God brings us and quickens us by regenerating, there is a sequence of events that necessarily happens. We will trust in him. We will be sanctified by him. And as a result, we will live and walk in good works and newness of life. This is what it means to draw near to God with a true heart in full assurance of faith. To do that is to live a life of obedience and faithfulness to God's law. That is the definition that the Bible gives us of what it means to draw near to God with a true heart. If you love me, Christ says, you will keep my commandments. Our assurance of salvation is not grounded on how much good work we do. No matter how, how many good works we do, we can never look to our good works for assurance of salvation. But in the absence of good works or in the presence of certain bad works, the assurance that we have, which is grounded in the gospel of Jesus Christ and the promises of God is eroded because it shows that we have not laid claim to those promises. The next command he gives here is to hold fast. The author continues his line of thinking. I'm not going to go into this because it's very much the same same command. Holding fast here means to be without incline. It means to to stand up straight and to bear up under the weight of whatever it is. That's what without wavering means. We hold this confession of faith, this confession of our hope, with integrity and confidence. We can stand up straight. We can bear up under the weight of the the world and the sin that tries to assail us. This, again, calls to mind obedience and consistency. The final clause of this passage, uh, of these three um, exhortations, it's a little bit weird to translate, and so our English translations try to smooth this out, and they say, let us consider Uh, consider one another or consider how to stir one another up. What the text literally says here is let us consider one another into provocation. We've all talked about, we've heard preached here in the pulpit and taught in Sunday school that this word here for um, stirring each other up is the same word that would be used for like an ox Mm goad, right? If you tap a goat, or a a cow or a horse gently on the rump and ask it to move, it's just going to look at you or may not even notice it. So that's why they have these sharp sticks or spurs and they have to poke at the animal and cause a little bit of pain to get it moving. That's the word we're talking about here. What is going on in the text here, we often think about this in terms of let's think about and let's brainstorm together ways to be uh, good Christians and to do good work and, and to love each other. What the text is actually saying here is let us consider one another. Let us look at each other's lives. Let us evaluate each other's fruit. And then in light of what we see, provoke one another to good works and to love. The only other place in the, um, in the Bible that this word for provoke is used is in Acts 1539. I'm just going to read it here. Let's, let me see if you can figure out which word we're talking about. Acts 1539 says, and there arose a sharp disagreement so that they separated from each other. Barnabas took Mark with him and sailed away to Cyprus. Which, which word in this passage do you think is the, the same word in the book of Hebrews? Sharp disagreement. This is not a comfortable thing, loved ones. This is not a kumbaya sitting around the campfire sharing, sharing ways to improve the community. There's a place for that. We've done that here, and that's fine, and there's a place for us to brainstorm ways to be more effective in our community, brainstorm ways to live in closer obedience and walk closer with God, but that is not necessarily what this passage is talking about. This passage is commanding us to look soberly at one another, and to, because we know and love each other, to identify areas of weakness and provoke each other through sharp disagreement at times into love and good works. This is not a fun process. The reason why we do this will become clear here in a minute. Now, there are many different ways that we could fail at this. There are many different sins that would cause us to to fall aground of this. The author of Hebrews has one specific thing in view. As we've studied the book of Hebrews in the past, pastor has preached through the whole book. I think we've gone through big portions of it in Sunday school. The author of Hebrews is writing to a group of Jewish Christians, probably dispersed across, uh, across the region. And they are tempted to leave the Christian church and go back to Judaism. They're tempted to abandon the mystical union with Christ that they have in favor of the shadows and the the sneak peek of the Old Testament. Instead of uniting to the Passover lamb, capital T, capital P, capital L, they want to go back to being united to these little play-acting shows that the Old Testament was. I don't say that to be disrespectful, but that's what they were. They were dramas designed to point us to the real thing, and they want to leave the real thing and go back to the drama. So what he has in view as the chief way that we may fall short of these, uh, of these exhortations is to neglect or forsake the gathering of the saints. The word neglect here is not strong enough. It's really more like forsake or abandoned. He's not talking about a Christian who for a, uh, a short period of time Uh, or even for a longer period of time because of providential hindrance, uh, is not able to participate in the life of the church, right? Someone who's in the military and is deployed to a country and they don't have access to religious facilities, or someone who comes down with a chronic illness, or when we had to close our doors briefly and sort of shutter the pulpit for a sense uh, during COVID. That's not the situation he's talking about. He's talking about someone who deliberately willfully separates themselves from the church, who has nothing preventing them from joining to a local church, participating in a local church, and simply chooses not to. Keep in mind, he's giving this command to people who could be murdered for simply attending the church, for simply participating in the life of the church. He says, let us consider one another to stir one another up to love and good works, not neglecting to meet together as is the habit of some. And then he gives us the prime reason why we do this, but encouraging one another all the more as you see the day drawing near. He's not talking about next Sunday. I mean, I guess he could be talking about next Sunday, but he's talking about the day of the Lord. He's talking about judgment day. As we face judgment, as judgment day comes for us, we are told to seek out the refuge of the local church, to seek out one another, to stir one another up, in order to be provoked to good works and righteousness. The word gathered here—just a side note—the only other place that that's used in the Bible is in Second Thessalonians one, uh, one, Second uh, Thessalonians two, verse one. It says, now concerning the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ and our being gathered together to him. It's not an accident that the Holy Spirit used this word in both spots. We gather together on the Lord's day in anticipation of the day that we will be gathered together as God's people in the eternal church. So when we fail to show up for church because of willful sinful desire not to. Again, not talking about providential hindrance or when you're on vacation and you can't find a local church that preaches the Bible. That's not what we're talking about. We're talking about regular faithful participation in a local church where you receive the gospel, you preach the law, you partake of the the sacraments or the ordinances. That's what we're talking about. When we fail to do that, it's a foreshadow of us failing to present for a heavenly day of court. Now, if you have a court date in the regular judicial world and you don't show up, you get further penalties, right? You get further charges. We all understand that. That leads us into this next passage here. Verse 26 through 31. For if we go on sinning deliberately after receiving the knowledge of truth, there no longer remains a sacrifice for sin, but a fearful expectation of judgment and a fury of fire that will consume the remains uh, consume the adversaries. For anyone who sets aside the law of Moses dies without mercy on the evidence of two or three witnesses. How much worse punishment do you think will be deserved by the one who has trampled underfoot the son of God and who has profaned the blood of the covenant by which he was sanctified and has outraged the spirit of grace? Isn't that a startling juxtaposition of words? Outraged the spirit of grace. It's just a weird combination for us to think about. What he has in view here when he speaks of sinning deliberately, it doesn't exclude other sins that we may commit deliberately, but what he has in view here is refusing to join oneself to the mystical church, refusing to remain in fellowship with other Christians. That's the sin that he says here brings about the state where there is no remaining sacrifice for sins. And the reason there's no remaining sacrifice for sins isn't because it somehow invalidates Christ's sacrifice. It's because you've trampled underfoot that very sacrifice rather than receive it. You have rejected it rather than accept it and be benefited by it. You have treated it like something to stomp on you have treated Christ like something to stomp on. Rather than unite yourself to his body, you have trampled all over it. This is why the passage in the Westminster Confession of Faith that we read earlier, this is why it says, out of which there is ordinary, no ordinary possibility of salvation. There isn't salvation out there. There's not salvation anywhere in the world except in Christ Jesus. And the way that we be in Christ Jesus is through faith, which leads to baptism and membership in the local church. This is serious stuff. We already read uh, the section about the, the manslayer or the manslayer in the city's a reshi- refuge. I wanted to just run through a couple, uh, a couple of brief passages that demonstrate what it means to be outside of the city of refuge that is the church. We read Acts 9, to reject the body of Christ is to reject Christ himself. We read numbers 35, to go outside of the city of refuge is to lose the benefit of the city of refuge. Right? The law doesn't apply less to you outside the city of refuge. In fact, it applies more to you. You are no longer sheltered from the penalties of the law if you leave the city of refuge. You may no longer be sheltered from God's wrath if you leave the mystical body of Christ. One commentator put it this way. He said, being a member of the covenant community does not in itself guarantee immunity from divine displeasure, either in the old Testament Israel or for the new Testament church. Matthew 18. We're very familiar with this. This is the passage about chap- about uh, church discipline, which culminates in someone refusing the discipline of the church being expelled from the church and considered as, by the church and all of the people within it, considered as a tax collector or a sinner. To remove yourself from the visible church is to indicate that you were never a part of the invisible church to begin with. I know that those are strong words, but that's what the Bible teaches. That's the force of Matthew 18. That's why he says, at the end of it, Truly I say to you, whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven, whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. Again, I say to you, if two of you agree on earth about anything they ask, it will be done for them by my Father in heaven. For where two or three are gathered in my name, there I am among them. This isn't a passage about Bible study and how a small group is actually just as effective as a big one. Again, that's something that the Bible teaches. This is a passage saying that when the local church places someone under discipline and they eventually have to remove them from the shelter of the church. When two or three are gathered in Christ's name for that purpose, Christ is right there with them confirming the verdict. Just as our author in Hebrews says that uh, the person who sets aside the law of Moses is killed without mercy on the basis of two or three witnesses. That's the same language here. First Corinthians five is the passage about the man uh, in Corinth who was, um, engaged in sexual relations with his mother-in-law. And Paul says, um, I won't read it, but he he ends saying, uh, cast him out of the church and hand him over to Satan for the destruction of his body. The goal is always repentance, but the method is always quite painful. When a person repents and comes back to the church, they are welcomed with open hands and open arms and rejoicing, both in the visible church and in the invisible church in heaven. The angels and the saints rejoice at the repentance of a sinner. But to be outside of the church is to be handed over to Satan. In, In Colossians, Paul says that we have been transferred from the kingdom of darkness into the kingdom of God's beloved son. Well, when we transfer ourselves back to the kingdom of darkness by leaving the kingdom of God's beloved son, we place ourselves in great danger. So why am I bringing this message today? I think there are a number of reasons. Um, chiefly, we are all going to be faced with a decision in a few months. Right? Some of us have not had to find a new church for many, many years. Some of us may have never had to find a new church. It's a little scary. And this area is not, uh, not rife with Bible-believing churches. They're out there. And the reason I'm bringing this word to you today and the reason I'm being forceful and the reason I'm maybe not as gentle as sometimes I am is that you must not fail to find and unite yourself to the local church. As long as we're here, we're here, right? This is a church until it's not. But once it's not, you need to run to find the next church. You need to run to unite yourself to it and you need to dive into it Full force, because that is where the safety from judgment is. Now, I don't want to be overly bombastic. I don't want to be overly alarmist. It's not as though if it takes you a couple weeks to figure out where you're going to land or if you aren't able to figure out where you want to go on that first Sunday. It's not as though gods he's not Zeus. He's not going to hit you with a thunderbolt. But one week turns to two weeks. Two weeks turns to three weeks. Three weeks turns to, oh, man, it's really nice to just sleep in a little bit. It's like when you hit that snooze alarm on your alarm. You're like, I'm just going to give myself one more one more snooze. Then pretty soon it's like two hours later. It happens to me like three times a week. That happens when you're trying to find a new church too. It also happens when you just don't come to church here for a couple weeks. I mean, there's been times where I haven't been able to come to church for a couple weeks, and it's hard to come back. It's hard to, to change your schedule back. But we must do the hard things. We didn't go through it, but the, the final portion of this passage, which is, is part of this, the author here reminds them of how hard it was to become Christians in the first place. Now, for us, honestly, for us, it was relatively easy in the grand scheme of things. I'm sure that none of us were threatened with death. I'm sure none of us were disowned from our families. Uh, some of us had a relational conflict, I'm sure. Changing your life and becoming something you were not is always hard. And when that comes uh, with a certain level of judgment associated with it, the people around us feel that. The presence of the Holy Spirit is uncomfortable for those who are profane. So this will not be an easy task, but we have to do it, and we have to look out for each other. Just because we won't be part of the same local congregation doesn't mean we aren't still brothers and sisters in Christ. We are part of this local congregation because we are part of one global congregation. So when we are done with this building and this body and we are moving on to other congregations, I expect that we'll still check in with each other. Don't be surprised if you get a text message from me a couple weeks after we close the doors to ask you where you went to church that day. And don't be surprised if I provoke you with a little sharp disagreement if that happens and you haven't found a place. Because I love you. care about you. Ashley and I have devoted our life to this church for the last nine-ish years. Our pastor has devoted his life to this congregation for 30 plus years. We wouldn't have done it if we didn't care and if we didn't love you. Let's pray and then we'll sing our closing song. Father, this is a hard word and we are not accustomed to preaching about judgment and to thinking about how it may apply to us. It is true that those who are saved um, will never face eternal judgment, but it is likewise true that there are those who have and will depart from your mystical body because they never were truly a part of your mystical body. So I pray that each of us would make our calling and election sure, that we would seek to draw near to you, that we would seek to hold fast to you, and that we would never neglect to consider one another and to gather together together pray these things in Jesus' name <clears throat> amen